There's an outline sheet <clears throat> that's part of your worship folder if you'd like to use that. Just want to let you know <clears throat> as you're uh, finding that, as you're getting ready, as we're getting ready for this message. We've got, we had a baptism at 8 o'clock this morning. We have uh, uh, three more after the 11 o'clock worship today. Um, just a, a sweet, sweet time. A guy that I've known for over 20 years at 8 o'clock. I baptized him. His name's Jim Kiefer. Um, one of the uh, young ladies that's being baptized following 11 o'clock worship today, her uh, uncle and aunt were at 8 o'clock worship and didn't know that uh, her family is also a part of the church, been visiting and coming. And they, I said her name, and he said, hey, that's my niece. Uh, that's wonderful. So it was just a, a great, great day. Yes, whoever, hallelujah, absolutely. Yeah, praise God. There's a story about an artist who completed a, a statue of Christ. The statue, the arms were stretched out wide, and his head was bowed low. And he invited a friend to uh, his studio to look at the finished work. And the friend looked at this beautiful work of art, but he said, I can't see Jesus' face. I can't see his face. And the artist replied, if you want to see the face of Jesus, you have to get on your knees. When we come to Jesus on bended knee, humbly, that's when we see him clearly. Thoughtful gift is a celebration of a birthday, as a special evening out is a celebration of an anniversary, as a warm eulogy is a celebration of a life, as an intimate embrace is a celebration of marriage, so is our worship a celebration of our Lord. Worship is the first purpose of our life. If you've ever asked yourself or if you've ever had somebody say to you, why am I here? Or what's the purpose? What's the meaning for my life? Listen, worship is the first purpose of our life. Old Westminster Catechism dates all the way back to, to 1647. It starts out with a series of questions and then there's an answer. There's a question and then an answer. Very first question is, what is the chief end of man? Now, realize this is 1647, archaic language to us. What's the chief end of man? The question is, what's the true purpose of a human being? What's the true purpose of a human being? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper says that everyone in the world worships something. From the most religious to the most secular, all people value something high enough to build their lives around it. it Maybe God, maybe money, or something else. But what makes it worship is the driving power of some cherished treasure that shapes our emotions and will and thought and behavior. Don't miss what he says here. What makes it worship is the driving power of some cherished treasure that shapes our emotions, our will, our thought, and our behavior. We're created to worship. We're created with the appetite. And we've got a whole world seeking to satisfy spiritual hunger with secondary sources of satisfaction. 
Our deepest need gets starved when we're attempting to do that. We worship the gods of our own devising at the silly shrines of our own making. And then we wonder why we're empty or depleted or hurting or broken in ways that we were never meant to be broken. John Piper writes that people ought to come to corporate worship starving for God. Nothing keeps God at the center of worship like the biblical conviction that the essence of worship is deep, heartfelt satisfaction in him and the conviction that the pursuit of that satisfaction is why we're together. Deep, heartfelt satisfaction in him and then the pursuit of that satisfaction when we're all together. So what's our chief purpose? If, if you were part of that, that Westminster Catechism and you were taking the course all those years back, 1647, and someone in the, in the class were to say, what is the chief end of man? Asking what's the real purpose of a human being. How would you respond? What's the memorized response of all those, all those folks going through those courses? What's the chief end of man? True purpose of a human being. Can you say it? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that's true, then God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Worship is just meant to be, then, a smashing time. A smashing time. Now, we can use the word smashing in a couple of ways, and I think that's what our scripture this morning from John's gospel that Darwin just read, I think that's what it's letting us know. The Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that this anointing of Jesus is at the home of a fellow named Simon. Now, John doesn't tell us that. Matthew and Mark tell us it's at the home of a guy named Simon. We don't know anything about him <clears throat> except that at one time he had leprosy. If he still had leprosy at this point of this occasion, no one could be there. I mean, he, he would have been by himself. So at one time, he had leprosy. The dinner may be something of a reunion of close friends of Jesus who've been touched and healed or changed by Jesus at some point, including probably this fellow Simon. Well, whatever the case, it's a party. It's a party. Everybody's having a great time. As the English might say, they were having a smashing time, a smashing time. When suddenly, suddenly, Mary, sister of Lazarus, carrying a container of extremely expensive perfume, comes into the room. And she does a simply amazing act. Now, Matthew and Mark don't identify her. John identifies her as Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, three of Jesus' closest friends. You might remember that we talked about Lazarus and his resuscitation, his raising, in the scripture from John 11 on Easter Sunday, if you were here. Lazarus is the one who was raised from the dead by Jesus. For this miracle then, this raising, renewing of Lazarus, Mary can never express her adequate thanks. She's overwhelmed with thanks. And possibly then her thankfulness and love and understanding all combine and not being able to contain herself, she does an unheard of thing. Now, up to this point, there's just been this general air of friendship and gratitude that's kind of graced the party, all of the conversation. But this action of Mary's just bursts 
all of the boundaries of propriety. It's just a, an act of, of worship that we see here. It's, an, it's a simply astounding moment. Now, in the Mideast style, what you have is a low, low table, and all the guests recline around the table, leaning on their left elbow, eating with their right hand, feet extended back from the table. So if you were here on Monday, Thursday, you saw Da Vinci's um, work of art of the Last Supper. You saw them in our style, in Italian style at that point, sitting around a table. And Da Vinci said it was because he wanted to have a contemporary, for that time, a contemporary feel. But that's not the picture of Mideastern style that Jesus and the disciples, the guests in Simon's home picture of very low table, everyone leaning, left elbow, eating with their right hands, and feet extended away. Unexpectedly, Mary approaches carrying a priceless alabaster container of imported perfume from India, just extremely costly. She breaks the narrow flask, and she pours not a few drops, but the entire contents on Jesus' head, and John, in his gospel, adds that she poured it over his feet as well. She completely covered him. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. She's captured the attention of every person there. <laughs> They're stunned. They're stunned because the Talmud, the Jewish code, says that even a good woman can be divorced simply for unbinding her hair in the presence of men, not her husband. She goes beyond that and takes her hair and wipes Jesus' feet. For that, there could have been stoning. So it's not enough to say that a wet blanket falls over the party. Uh, the disciples, led by Judas, unleash a barrage of ritualistic criticism on her. They register two complaints. The oil is wasted, and it's so expensive that it should have been used and sold and the proceeds given to the poor. And what we see, what we see in this, at first, first of all, is Jesus' defense. He just says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. Now, the criticism has exposed the motives. In fact, Mark writes that they rebuked her harshly. It's in Mark chapter 14, verse 5. They rebuked her harshly. Another way of translating that is that they criticized her sharply. But that translation, even that, isn't nearly biting enough for the Greek word that's used there by the Gospel of Mark for this situation. It's the same verb that John used when he described Jesus' revulsion and outrage with death at the tomb of Lazarus. Just before he raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, the outrage and revulsion of Jesus is recorded, and the word that's used there, if you were here on Easter, was of a horse snorting. <sighs> Just that picture of... <sighs> that's the picture that John used of Jesus... At death, his outrage over death, at the death of Lazarus. It's the same word that Mark uses now of the disciples' revulsion of Mary's 
costly gift. It's this, this kind of picture of disgust. They, they, they snorted their indignation like nettled horses. It's an ugly picture. Ugly. And Jesus absolutely rejects that criticism. Rather than wasteful, it's a beautiful action, he says. It's a beautiful action on Mary's part. Now, the word that's used by Matthew and Mark here in their description of it is kalos, K-A-L-O-S. It means a good work. Kalos arouses curiosity. It, it gets attention of a watching world. It's, it's looking at someone and saying, why is, he, why is she that way? That goodness in that situation, where'd that come from? It arouses curiosity, and it's goodness so fine that it's, it's a beautiful blessing. So what Jesus is saying, if this action on Mary's part is wasted beauty, so is a sunset. That's how Jesus is responding to this. Now, don't be misled. Jesus isn't arguing against caring for the poor. He's not diminishing our obligation to care for the needy. In fact, he implies our ongoing responsibility to continually be of help. But here... He's simply saying that there are moments that have to be seized because they simply will not come again. There are times that we want to catch and capture because they're not going to come around again. This time in Jesus' life is just before his death on the cross. And he credits her perception with this timely, beautiful understanding and this simply sweet devotion, this act of love. Now, Mary's action then, let's take a look at it. Mary took about a, a pint of pure nard, expensive perfume. As we said, it's from India, imported, costly. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then this little verse from the Gospel of Mark. She broke the jar, poured the perfume on his head, Mark says, so she covered him. And then this little phrase, verse 8, she did what she could. She did what she could. None of them, none of them had a long time to do anything for Jesus. He was headed toward the cross. He's only days away. Jesus said that, that her action <clears throat> was like anointing his body for burial. He's saying to them, you, you haven't yet given your complete self. You haven't yet given your complete self and done what you can do. So don't criticize someone else who has. Now, depending on the size of the flask, estimates of the value of the anointing in today's dollars are between $10,000 and $30,000. It's an incredibly, incredibly precious gift that she's given. Amazing sacrifice. And Jesus, Jesus speaks to it this way. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then John, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Jesus matched Mary's gratitude with his own. He etches her loving action into a lasting tribute that's echoed down through the centuries. And this message, here and now, this message, us, gathered here today, shared this morning, her action continues to pour out its loving story of love's extravagance down to 
today with us, down through the centuries. She had the sensitivity of heart to understand what was happening. Mary memorializes Jesus' burial in this anointing, and he memorializes her act of love that will help sustain him as he goes to the cross and endures it. Now, as I said earlier, there are a couple of ways to think of the word smashing. Smashing. The first is the description of a party at Simon's home, and it was a smashing good time. Have you ever been to a party like that? You probably, you know. Uh, how was the party? Have you ever said, oh, smashing? Well, probably not. But you, you probably would have said, it was great. We had such a wonderful time. In fact, in fact we're going to see some pictures after worship of the egg hunt. And when we see that, when we see all those kids, their families, at the egg hunt, the Saturday before Easter, you're going to be able to say, hey, it was smashing. It was a great time. Now, they're not crushing eggs, but it was a great time. It was a great time. So that's one way to describe the party, one way to talk about the word smashing. But there's a second. There's a second way. Smashing in terms of Broken, broken. When Mary entered the room, broke that flask of costly perfume, in one sense, she broke up the party. She broke out in worship. It wasn't a, a, a flask or vase-breaking party. She did it all by herself. It was an absolutely controversial action, and the contents were forever released. In fact, our scripture from John's gospel records that the fragrance filled the room. Do you know what was broken besides the flask? Have you thought about it? What was broken besides the flask? Mary was broken. Mary was broken. She humbled herself before Jesus and everybody else in that room. And here's the question. Here is the question for every one of us here this morning. Must I be broken? Must I be broken? Take a look at these these verses. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And from Isaiah, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, the Holy One says this, I live in that high and holy place where those with contrite, humble spirits dwell, and I will refresh the humble and give new courage to those with repentant hearts. Now these verses, these couple of verses, and so many others like them through Scripture, remind you and me that worship is meant to be a smashing time. It's meant to be a smashing time. It's meant to be a time when we're broken. When we're broken, a time for my strong will or my argumentativeness, or my quickness to judge, my hardness of heart, my, and the list can go on and on. What in my life needs to be broken? Must I be broken? Here's how Joshua Harris, little book called Stop Dating the Church, addresses it. He writes this, We have absorbed attitudes and assumptions from the world around us that have negatively affected what we expect from church and how we worship. For example, 
self-centered. Rather than asking, what did I get from that? What did I get from that worship today? The better question would be, what did I lose? Rather than asking, what did I get? The better question would be, what did I lose in that worship? What burden did I drop at the foot of the cross? What pride did I shed? What gnawing anger am I going home without? What lie do I no longer believe? What did I lose in that time of worship? What needs to be broken? Maybe it's just a proud independence, a a contrite, humble heart. I will refresh the humble and give new courage to those with a repentant heart. The word repent just means to simply turn around, do a 180, come back toward God. Say, well, I don't know. I just don't feel that. I, you know, I just don't feel much when I go. Not much happens ever. I don't know. I don't feel much. As though I'm God. It's supposed to center on me. Paul Shearer writes, the Bible wastes very little time on the way we feel. (laughs) You say, oh, really? Well, the Bible wastes very little time on the way we feel. John Piper says this, in our hearts, we know that we were not made to be made much of. We were made to make much of something great. The best joys are when we forget ourselves, enthralled with greatness, and the greatest greatness is God's. The greatest greatness is God's. What needs to be broken in me? It's a question for every one of us. Maybe it's just critical, critical spirit. When I come to worship as a consumer, I'm focused on comparing and critiquing. We want to give up our critical consuming mindset and come into the Lord's almighty presence as a communer. Not a consumer, but a communer, communing with God, one another, body of Christ. Josh Harris says, Josh Harris says, we go to meet God and express our love to others. So the high, lofty one lives and works through broken people. Broken people. But never can we say that the quality of our brokenness is the essence of our worship. If the focus has shifted somehow onto any of our giving to God instead of him giving himself to us, then the center of our worship has shifted. Mary did not break the container of costly perfume in order to receive anything from Jesus. She simply did it as an act of humble obedience, humble, loving, delighted satisfaction in him. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The fragrance was on Jesus from head to toe. The fragrance was also on Mary. Her gift to Jesus, given with no focus on herself, nevertheless became a means of blessing. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here it is. It's the question for every one of us. Every one of us. Does being around me, and you ask it of yourself, Does being around me make others think of Jesus? Does being around me 
make others think of Jesus. We're not just talking Sunday. We're talking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We're talking about home. We're talking about work. We're talking about work. We're talking about recreation. We're talking about pumping gas. We're talking about out on the I-25. And we're talking, does that make you think of Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. Does being around me make others think of Jesus? Is worship for me a shift in focus off self, off pride, off criticalness, and onto Him? Who is my God? Who is my God? What do I worship? Is there a need for me to get on my knees before him and be broken? What needs to be broken in my life? Have I given my all? Have I poured out my life at the feet of Jesus? Am I holding anything back? Am I doing what I can? You remember that little phrase? She did what she could. Am I doing what I can with a courageous heart that longs to worship him, that longs to serve him? What what I do makes a difference in my world. When I do what I can with the expectation that God will somehow use it for his glory, it becomes a beautiful expression of worship. And it's not just Sunday. He seeks our brokenness not because he won't be complete until he receives it. He seeks our brokenness Because we won't be complete until we do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what in my life, as we come to a time of communion, what in my life needs to be broken open and poured out before you? Am I doing what I can with a courageous heart that longs to worship and serve you? Lord Jesus, may our lives this week and all our relationships, all all our interactions, wherever you find us through this week, may our lives be expressions of our love and our worship. These are our prayers as your people. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.